Well, then perhaps that's a good topic to uh, talk about. Let me just uh, kind of fra frame this right. Uh, when, when we think about family, th there's basically no one who's neutral to that. We, we all have a kind of an image or something that we go through as a family, something that is kind of on our minds, on our hearts. What kind of sparked me this, uh, the, this past week is that a friend of mine called me. It's one of my best friends back from Germany, and he messaged me that his brother had committed suicide in a hotel room in California. And he basically had to leave overnight and uh, with his dad and with his sister to go and uh, basically check up on the situation that happened there in California. And uh, I was so shocked when I read the news. I I've, I've met the brother, my, my son Carlos and I, a few years ago, we uh, took a trip to California. I spoke at a, at a, at a conference there and we met the brother And uh, I actually looked through my phone and I saw this wonderful picture of this man who just looked like, you know, like life, like a Californian beach guy, like, you know, uh, open shirt, um, uh, uh, just, just really a, a strong man. Um, and now he's dead. And so um, it took me a day to kind of muster up the courage to call my friend. Um, and I, I call him and I see him on FaceTime and he's basically in his brother's apartment and he's kind of you know, working his way through all kinds of stuff there. And, and I'm like, you know, and we, we start the conversation and I'm like, how are you doing? And he's like, well, uh, you know, this was so shocked. I, I, haven't, uh, I haven't been able to process this at all. Um, just this morning, I just lost it and I've been crying here on the floor for the last three hours. I don't know, something like that just kind of messed with me, with my heart and my brain, my... I thought of my brother. My brother just moved here to the island of Mallorca a few weeks ago. He's not here with us today. He's, he's traveling. His, uh, his wife is here. But uh, for me to imagine losing my brother in, in something as terrible as a suicide and then having to work through his stuff, it just like killed me. It's been messing with my heart and mind. So I've been thinking about family and how do I relate to my family? How do I live my faith within my family? Uh, I'm very fortunate to have part of my family here today with us. So my, my sister-in-law is uh, here with my, my, my wife, my, my two kids, and my parents. And actually, today it's my dad's birthday. So after, after church, yes. So as, as I'm thinking about my family and the family situation, I want to kind of help process for all of us this morning, how, how do we think about our family? And, and as I say, no one's kind of neutral. Perhaps you come here with a very positive posture about your family. Perhaps you're here today, and if you hear, even hear the word family, you, you want to jump out of the window. And uh, one reason you're hiding here in Mallorca is because you want to get away from your family. 
Um, so here's the question I want to raise. How do you live your faith in your family? So I assume because you're in church today, you're thinking through also what kind of faith has to play with your family. I'm, I'm just assuming that. Um, perhaps up to this point you have not, but, but let me just assume that. That you've, that you've kind of thought about this question yourself. How do you live? How do I live my faith as being part of a family? We're all part of a family. I don't care how messed up your family is or how far away your family is. You're, you are still part of a family, a natural family. And so let me just say, I want to talk to three people or three kinds of people this morning very specifically. Years ago, I learned that as a communicator or as a speaker and preacher, if you try to talk to everyone, you're going to talk to no one. So I always kind of, uh, before I speak, I kind of like, who do I want to talk to today? Who, who am I aiming at? And so the first uh, kind of person or people that I'm uh, talking to, want to talk to you today is perhaps uh, you are a Christian, but your family is not. Some of us here in the room are Christians. You are a Christian, but your family is not. How do you live your faith in your family? Number two a second kind of uh, person I want to talk to, you find yourself in a very difficult family situation. Number three, um, perhaps you're here today and you want to develop a quote-unquote Christian family. You want faith to be a vital part of your family set up. So how do you do that? So I, I just want to kind of uh, teach a little bit through uh, um, some of the things that I'm observing as I'm studying the New Testament and, and the Scripture. So let me, let me open up. Let me first pray, and then we, when we open up uh, here with the Scripture. Heavenly Father, we call you uh, our Heavenly Father because uh, that is a family term, and we want to relate to you in a very familiar family-like way. And I'm very... Um, conscious that as we even discuss and open up this topic of talking about family that there's all kinds of things that may be going through our hearts and minds and our, our soul and so I just pray this morning to you our Heavenly Father that you may actually quiet our soul for a moment and just kind of speak the words of truth that you want communicated this morning into every single one of us in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let's open up our uh, Bibles uh, to the New Testament, Mark chapter 3. So at the beginning of the New Testament, there's of course Matthew, then there's Mark, the second uh, epistle, uh, the second gospel in the New Testament. And all the way at the beginning, there is this text that I'm going to read to you, beginning with, with verse 31. Mark chapter 3, beginning with, uh, with uh, verse 31. Then Jesus mother and brother also arrived. Let me, let me just set the context. So Jesus is in a house teaching and there are lots of people around because he's popular as a preacher and as a teacher. And at some point, his mother and his brother arrive at the scene where Jesus is teaching. So standing outside because they can't get in, it's too full a crowd. It's too many people in the house. They send someone inside the house to call on Jesus. A crowd was sitting around him, and they all told him, Hey, Jesus, your mother and brother are outside of the house, and they're looking for you. And then verse 33, it says that Jesus replies, Well, who the heck are my mother and my brothers? 
Then he looked at the people that were sitting around him in a circle, and he said to them, Here are my mother and brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. So this is the text I want to kick us off with this morning, thinking about family. This is a very tough text at the beginning of the gospel stories. Let me be honest. It's just after Jesus had kind of called his 12 disciples, he's beginning his public ministry of speaking and teaching. And as I've already mentioned, he is becoming very popular. He's forming a new kind of crowd, a new kind of community. He's got some disciples that are following him day and night. So apparently he's left his family home. He's now off by himself. And then we read this text of his mother and brothers showing up and be Jesus basically slaps them in the face. At least that's how I interpret this text. This is a very extreme response that Jesus gives here to his mother and brothers. Just imagine for a moment, you've raised a child, you've nurtured him, you've helped him become the man that he is now, and then all of a sudden, in a public arena with lots of people around, he doesn't even know you. A very loving thing of Jesus to say about his mother and his brothers, isn't it? Well, if you think that is kind of extreme in our context, let me just highlight that back then, this was even more a slap in the face than you could ever imagine because the value of family was a whole lot higher and more important than it is for us today in the 21st century. First century, especially Jewish context, there was nothing as important as the family. Your whole social construct on how you saw yourself and your identity and your profession, everything was connected to your immediate family. Very much different to our times today. We live in a time today where, yes, we all have a family, but we're individuals. We create our own lives. We, we, we set up our, uh, to journey the world and find professions, whatever we choose to. We don't learn our father's trade. Back then, as a son, you would always take the job of the father. You would stay with the family all the way until you uh, start your own family. And then it was very, very common to even be living together very, very closely knit because the family was really the core construct of society, which today I don't need to talk long about that is not the case anymore. It's not the case. So I'm from Germany, and I can definitely say out of my culture, my context, family is not the core building block anymore within our society. This may be true for some other, may not be true for some other cultures, but definitely here I would observe that for the Western culture, that family, yes, that's something where we get started, but it's definitely not where we spend our lives. We all move on. Back then, your family was your common root your lived household, your primary profession, your social center, your religious core cell, and your personal identity. That was family to you. And now, even further, I would say that Jesus, being out of the Jewish tradition, 
being a rabbi, a teacher of the Old Testament, the Torah, everything in the Old Testament is about the core construct of the family. In fact, you can read the whole Old Testament as a chronicle of a family. Let me show you uh, one, one passage here in Deuteronomy uh, uh, chapter 6, so all the way at the beginning of the scriptures. That says in Deuteronomy 6, These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on your door frames of your houses and your gates. When the Lord your God brings you in the land, he swore to your fathers, to your family, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a land with large flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. This is God speaking to the family that is growing out of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it is a family that is supposed to observe the commandments and not to forget the family story of God bringing his family out of Egypt into the promised land. You were a Jew if your mother was a Jew. The Old Testament is full of descriptions that manifest this core identity that you belong to a tribe, you belong to a family, we've got fathers, we've got brothers, we've got sisters, it's all tightly knit together, all the promises are to this family, we are to live together and, 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 and build houses together, we need to develop society together, it's the commandments to the Jewish people of Israel, you as a family. And now Jesus shows up. As a Jew... In the first century, understanding that family is the most important thing and building block within society. And he says what we've just read in Mark chapter 3. Who are my brothers and my sisters? Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. So here's what Jesus does. Jesus initiates a new spiritual family that everyone can belong to. So, theologically speaking, that is an absolute revolution that we experience here in the Gospel stories. Jesus, out of the family tradition of the Jewish context, he basically initiates, kickstarts, a new kind of family. And this family is not by blood, because your parents were Jews or your mom was a Jew, but this is a new spiritual family that is made of those who do what he, as a teacher, as a rabbi, is teaching and preaching. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. Let me show you out of the uh, Christmas chapter, uh, Luke chapter 2, just a short uh, passage. This is uh, there's a story that we read around Christmas. Luke chapter 2, verse 48 to 50. It's this famous scene where Jesus is 12 years old and he's uh, with his parents in Jerusalem. When his parents saw Jesus, 
They were very astonished. Jesus had kind of disappeared, run away from his parents. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. So they had lost Jesus in the crowd. He was 12 years old, a young man, and he had gone disappearing. And they were looking for him. Where were you searching for me, Jesus asked. Didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Already as a teenager, Jesus kind of introduced this idea. Well, yes, I do have Joseph as my natural father, but do you not have an idea that beyond him, beyond my natural father, there is the heavenly father that I relate to? And I need to be in his house because he is the one that I ultimately want to serve and be part of his family. Already as a child, Jesus, in a sense, rebelled and saw his sonship defined rather by belonging to his heavenly father than his earthly father. So let me just reiterate this. Jesus initiates in the Gospels, and that's, um, I would say, good Christian Orthodox theology. Jesus actually initiates a new family in the New Testament through his incarnation through his teaching and preaching, then his, through his death and resurrection and the commissioning of the Holy Spirit to be inhabiting his brothers and sisters as a new spiritual family. In the New Testament, later on, uh, theologians think about what does this all mean? There's a new community. There's a new family. We always thought it's only about the natural family. Now we have a spiritual family. So the Apostle Paul has all kinds of long verses and long chapters that he writes about this new kind of family that Jesus came to initiate. And he has all kinds of different pictures on how to describe how all of a sudden this weird mixture of people with all kinds of different backgrounds, not just Jews, but also Gentiles, not just the good looking, not just the rich, not just the poor, but this weird mixture all of a sudden finds itself in the same room together as a new, as Paul would say, body. There's this whole teaching in 1 Corinthians about the body, how we uh, are becoming the body of Christ. And the body is like a physical body. You have different elements. You've got arms and legs and, and you've got shoulders and you've got kidneys and you've got all these different elements. And, 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 and Paul is using that image like to say that this body is kind of this new family. We're, we're all put together into this new body as a, as, a, as a new family, new spiritual family. And whether you like it or not, we're all kind of put together in the same kind of thing here. A new family that you all of a sudden are part of with all the, let's say, weird and strange characters that you also find in your natural family. If you ever come to church and kind of said, well, that's kind of a strange person we've got here in church. Where does he come from? What's his background? And, uh, and you find out, well, he's also part of the family. And in German, we always could, uh, talk about Ekel Alfred. I don't know if you know in English what Ekel Alfred is. But there are some characters we have specific names for within families, like strange people that all of a sudden we find ourselves in. Just like you have that in your own natural family, you have that in church. So before I uh, continue teaching on this, let me just say, I think this is good news for all of us. 
In fact, I'm actually quite convinced that this is good news for all of us. If you come out of a messed up natural family situation, this is the best news ever. You've got a new kind of family here. If you come out of a good family where you're quite happy with the family, let me say it's also good news. It's so special. It's so special. You know that we talk nowadays about this big pandemic that is called loneliness. There, there are lots of, lots of, um, there's lots of research out on how the big pandemic of the 21st century really is people being lonely. In fact, my friend uh, that I was with on the phone, he told me that he read through uh, some of the notes of his brother who committed suicide. With a little gear. And one reason why he did that was because he was lonely. And there was no one by his side. So he shot himself. I would say wherever you're from today, whatever your background is, whatever your family situation is, welcome to the family. You don't need to be lonely in your journey through life. Life is tough. Things happen that we don't expect. But you have a new family if you want to follow Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You've got a new family. You've got a new father. I think it's very good news for all of us, despite our own natural family situation. So now I would like for you uh, to kind of think with me through what we can learn from our spiritual family. And I don't want to do a big teaching today on what churches and how we're being knit together. I think we'll leave that for them some other time because I really want to kind of t draw some lessons that I've been thinking through for my natural family. What can I learn from my spiritual family and from this church environment here? What can I derive that to my own natural family? So I'm married to Andrea. We've, we, we've been married for over 20 years. We've got three boys. I've got my parents here. We still have our grandparents alive. Then I've got my brother who's just moved to the island. So I'm part of this family setup. And oftentimes, I am as a son, as a father, as a husband, I'm kind of trying to navigate, well, this is a new situation. How, how do I relate to that? How, how do I live that out? How do I... How do I um, process that? And so let me just uh, kind of talk you through what I am discovering, what we can learn from our spiritual family, from our natural family. The first thing that I would like to say is fatherly love. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with uh, adults, mostly men, that uh, tell me that they, they have a terrible relationship with their natural father. They grew up not with a, in a household of love. And even though they are very old, perhaps, they, they still uh, suffer under not being raised by a loving natural father. In fact, about... Ten days ago, I was uh, at, a, at a conference in the south of France. Uh, I spoke uh, to some uh, entrepreneurs and business owners down there. And one evening, we had a fancy uh, gala dinner. And a, 
a business guy from England sat next to me, uh, who, half French, half England, English, and we had a conversation. And in the conversation, he, he told me that he, as a 58-year-old, is still heavily trying to process his relationship with his dad who's already passed away. One of the absolute beauties of discovering this new spiritual family is that you really discover what the love of the Father is all about and how we as fathers can love our children. There's this unbelievable chapter in the New Testament, Luke chapter 15. It's called The Return of the Prodigal Son. It is this marvelous story that Jesus tells about a father who had two sons and one of them loves his dad so much that he tells him, I wish you were dead. And he wants the money and he takes off in the faraway land. I don't need to recount the whole story, but it's a, it's a, it's a phenomenal picture that Jesus tells about a father with his relationship to his sons and then how the son later on discovers that he's messed it up and that he has kind of taken things off-road and he kind of comes back and he's all remorseful and he wants to, wants to ask for forgiveness. And then there's this beautiful image of the father standing there in front of the house, looking, searching, where's my son? And there's not a second where he's kind of bashing his son. There's not a second where he's kind of counting down his sins and all the stuff that he's done wrong, but there's just the wide open stretched arms of the loving father welcoming his son back in. There's a famous painting by Rembrandt, which is called The Return of the Prodigal Son. And I've got, actually got an image here for you to see that. It's a, it's, a wonderful, it's a wonderful painting that you can do a whole meditation on, but basically it's this description of Luke 15 where the, the, the father is welcoming in lovingly his son who's totally messed it up and, and he clothes him with new royal clothes and he, he reinstates him in the family. He lavishly goes and spends uh, uh, money on a, on a big feast. And, and these are the stories we hear in church about how a father is supposed to love their sons. Jesus is not just telling here nice little cute Sunday school stories for the kids, but he's really teaching to all of us the image of what a, the fatherly love can be like. And so whatever we may have as different difficult connotations with our natural father, when we come to church and when we hear about our heavenly father, we should all be kind of learning, oh, this is how the love of the father can be displayed. And this is how I can relate perhaps in my own life, how I can relate to my dad or how I become a dad and actually relate to my own children. I think there are wonderful lessons for every one of us to learn from the fatherly love that we see in the scriptures. Love that is not with requirements, lavishly, but just open arms stretched out. I've talked to many people in church who don't know how to be a good father. They're trying to raise children. They don't know how to be good fathers. Well, I'm like, well, if you haven't had a natural father, it's really difficult to figure out how to be a good dad yourself. Unless you really study 
what we learn about being a father in the scriptures, about the love of the heavenly father. All of a sudden we get new ideas, new images, new ways on perhaps how we can relate to our children. Number two here, so the second thing I want to talk to you about, speaking truth in grace. What can we learn from our spiritual family for our natural family? There's this wonderful verse in John chapter 1, verse 13, which says, Jesus was full of grace and truth. I don't know if you ever thought about this verse much more. Jesus was full of grace and truth. Normally you say these two things are kind of like opposites. There's grace on the one hand, and there's truth on the other hand. Grace is this love, this expression of you know, um, openness, and then there's truth, which is kind of harsh, and it's direct, and it's straight, and, 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 and that's the fantastic thing about Jesus. He's so full of both. He's full of grace, and he's full of truth. I think we can learn here in church how to speak truth to our kids, to our wives, to our husbands, to our parents, how we can speak truth in grace. In fact, I would say that one of the things that I appreciate so much here about our church is that on Sundays when Raphael is here to speak and preach and teach, that he has such a loving way, and he even made this the whole motto of the church, that you know, this church community, and he just reiterated that a, a couple of weeks ago, he, he talked about love, how we want to be a community of love and we share love. And then he, he, he takes the scriptures and he actually teaches us truth in a loving way. And we actually all sit there and we say, oh yeah, that's good. That, that is true and it is loving. So I would say that Sunday mornings actually is so awesome for us to kind of learn something about truth but it's communicated in a loving way for us to absorb and actually kind of live it out in our own lives. And that's a good way for us then to take it back home to our families and learn we want to communicate truth within our relationships. We want that to be this element of truth, but we want to do it and we want to learn how to do that in a loving way. I think we all as parents need to listen up whenever we're here in church on how truth can actually be communicated in a loving way, because it is possible, and it's something we urgently need within our natural families. Number three, moral guidelines. A couple of months ago, I was uh, I was speaking with uh, with an entrepreneur in uh, in in Frankfurt in Germany. He's a very successful man. He he's made uh, millions uh, through through his business. It's uh, it's a tech company, and uh, he, as a businessman, uh, actually went uh, through a, a divorce. His his marriage fell apart, and so that evening that we're kind of sitting together, um, that evening specifically, we we kind of talked on a very personal level about just his his family situation, and actually because he's very successful, he should be very happy when you know all the money is made, but but he's not happy because his marriage fell apart, and so I asked him in our conversation, well, how did this happen? How did you, how did your marriage kind of break? fall apart. And here's what he said. He said, well, if I'm very honest about it, I had no proper guardrails. I had no proper guardrails. I had nothing that kind of kept me in line. I brought you a picture here um, from some guardrails uh, on, on a road. That's actually how I think about moral guidelines. If you don't, if you don't have these guardrails, you know, on the, on, on the street, you know, 
bad accidents happen because people, you know, just go, they are actually there to protect us. If something happens, if you kind of swirl around, they are actually there to protect us as drivers. We need these guardrails along every bar, uh, every, uh, every autobahn, every, every road that is properly built for speed. We, we need these guardrails. Well, let me just say this morning, I, I think we don't just need that for driving. We also need that for our lives, proper guardrails that kind of protect us. Here's what I've come to believe. I believe families fall apart because there are no guardrails. Men. And where do you get these guardrails? Well, out of out of out of television, out of out of uh, the newspaper, out of you know your friends' advice at work. I believe that church is the place where we kind of come together here on a Sunday and we open up the scriptures and we learn about good guardrails that God wants to give us for our life to be successful. And and these are not just kind of moral teachings for our own lives, but these are actually some 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 help for our families. For our marriages, how many marriages do we know that where things have just kind of blown up and fallen to pieces and everything is smashed? Uh, and it's because, you know, lines have been crossed that shouldn't have been crossed. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not here to kind of be um, a moralistic preacher here this morning. I'm, I'm just saying that I, I really believe that, that we can learn here in this context of church. We can really learn some things that we can take back home to our families and we can teach uh, perhaps that to our children, but more important, we need to live that out with, within our family contexts. Number four, what can we learn from the spiritual family about, uh, to, for our natural family? Joint prayer. When I, was a, when I was a teenager, I went to live with a different family uh, in the United States. I was an exchange student to Boise, Idaho. And I lived with a fa family that I'd never met before, but I climbed on a plane. It was a Christian family by, by the name of Johnson. So there was Dennis and Kathy Johnson, a wonderful family in Boise, Idaho. Christian family would go to church on Sundays. Um, and uh, um, I, was, I was all of a sudden adopted into this new family. We'd go to church on Sundays, and that church actually had something very interesting there. It was uh, a Nazarene church in... Um, uh, in, uh, in just outside of Boise, and it, it was a big sanctuary, but it had something very special in that church. It actually had a place up front where you could come and kneel down at the end of a service. I don't know if you guys have ever seen that in a church, but there are some churches where you don't just have a platform, you don't just have a pulpit, but we really have like a kneeling bench up front. So at the end of almost every sermon, the preacher would kind of invite people to respond and kind of come up front and kind of pray, kneeling in front of the, the altar and just kind of, you know, sort things out with God, sort things out with each other and, and just have a time of prayer. Something that we also want to offer here as part of the church. That's why we have some chairs dedicated to it. Anyhow, numerous times, it was very interesting for me to observe that part of my family members over there, the Johnsons, at the end of the sermon, they would get up and they would walk up front and they would kneel down and they would pray. And I would specifically um, observe my, my host dad, Dennis, sometimes went up front, and he as the father of the house would kneel down and pray to God. And I thought, wow, that's, 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 that's very cool. That, that's, that's quite a picture. Well, let me tell you which pictures stuck to my head. I remember one evening we received the news within the family that an aunt had, uh, had been diagnosed with cancer. 
So we were at home, we were having dinner, and we had just finished dinner, and we get a phone call. Kathy is on the phone. She hears that an aunt had been diagnosed with cancer. It's a shock to the whole family. We're all like, well, what do we do? So Dennis, the father, gets up. He, he gets us all away from the, from the kitchen table where we just had dinner, takes us aside and says, family, I think we should pray and ask God to help us. So then he, as the father of the household, in the middle of the living room, just knelt down. He was the only one, the, the father of the household, knelt down and started praying for this aunt who had been diagnosed with cancer. I stood there as a teenager and I'm like, wow, that's quite a picture. The father of the household, not being this proud, macho kind of guy, but actually being humble enough to kneel down and pray for God to help the family. I think Dennis learned that at church and he took it back to his family. That you pray when you don't know what to do, you pray and you pray as a family. So told you that I've got a um, young family one of the best things of my day, probably the best thing of my day is in the evenings when, when I pray with my boys, specifically with Cedric. Um, he, he always comes over um, before he goes to bed and, uh, and we have a very simple procedure. We kind of um, put his, each other's hands on, on the heart of, uh, of each other and he puts his hand on my heart, I put my hand on his heart and we just say a little prayer for each other. First we pray openly, freely, and then after that we always finish off with the Lord's Prayer and we pray it out loud together. And then we say good night. I've learned the Lord's Prayer here in church. And praying as father and son or perhaps even as spouses, praying together is something that just changes the whole atmosphere of a family. What can you learn as a natural family from your Spiritual family joint prayer that you pray together. This is old saying, families that pray together stay together. Marriages that pray together stay together. Number five, and I'm going to finish off just in a couple of seconds, uh, the view of money. You know how many families fall apart because of money? I know family stories where one brother is stealing from another brother. I know families that have fallen apart over fighting over inheritance. There's all of a sudden there's money, someone has died, tragic event happened, and but all of a sudden there's some money, and then there's this big fight on you know who gets how much. Greed destroys families. Envy destroys families. I could list out of our you know, friendships and our, our church relationships that we've mustered over the years, I could tell you stories over stories of why well, I know that money and the wrong attitude towards money has destroyed complete families. So I would say that one thing you can take back to your natural family is a proper view of where do you rank money and what's, what, how do you view money. Uh, in your own life. Let me, let me just kind of put this on the screen. Here's what I think you can learn in church about money. And this is not a sermon about money, but I, I'm just going to give you my, my 
my snapshot observation, what you can learn about money in church. 100% of money belongs to God. Everything is a gift. Let me say, and I don't have time today to teach on that. If you understand this sentence, you're never going to have issues fighting over money in your family. If you understand that everything that you've got, every cent you've got in your pocket, ultimately is not yours, but it all belongs to God, then there is no fight about money because you don't have any entitlement. It's all his. That's the stuff that you learn only in church. And, and it's very you know, controversial because we're, always, we're so proud of making money. I've got my money. I'm rich. I've got my bank accounts. I've got my stocks. Well, if you come to church and really listen about the good teaching on money, it's not just that 10% belongs to God. That's kind of wrong biblical teaching. It's not 10% belongs to God. It's not just the type. The good biblical teaching is that everything that you own, every cent you own is all God's. You're just a steward. You're just, you're just someone who's entrusted to handle God's money in, in the meantime. So if you understand that there's zero entitlement, and let me say there will be zero fighting about money when someone dies, if you really understand it's not yours anyhow. Okay, last one, and perhaps one of the most crucial ones, forgiving one another. What can you learn in church? Let me close with this story. When uh, a few years ago, we wanted to start a new church in the city of Mainz in Germany. Um, about 100 people uh, came from all over Germany and the world to basically do a new church plant in the city of Mainz. And one of the things we did in the evenings, we put a, we put a big tent in the front of the Rathausplatz there in, in the city of Mainz. And, and uh, throughout the day, we would be inviting people from the city of Mainz to come and join us for an evening dinner. We would have lots of food and we'd had some wonderful music, uh, live music. And then we'd always have a a gospel presentation. And back then, my, my dad was actually the one sharing uh, from the scriptures about the gospel and the good news. And so on one of the evenings, first week of church planting in the city of Mainz, a man walks in by the name of Vinny. And I actually brought you a picture of Vinny that you can picture him. Vinny was a guy working in the city of Mainz. Um, he had one of these little um, booths there on the markets where, you know, it'd always be on the street. He's kind of a character. Uh, people know him. He's a big Mainz Dolphin fan, and so he always has some something, you know, with a soccer club uh, attached to it. So he walks in, and at that time, he was 55 years of age. And that evening, that first evening that he walks in, he hears a gospel presentation about forgiveness. How God wants to forgive us. How God is not this grumpy old guy who's just kind of counting our sins, but God is this loving character who really, with open, outstretched arms, wants to invite us into his family through forgiveness of our sins, through what Jesus did on the cross. So Vinny hears that message and somehow God works in his life, even though he was not going to church, it wasn't his thing. He hears something and it deeply impacted him that first evening. Here's what happened the next day. The next day he shows up and he grabs one of the young guys who was part of the, the church planting team here, a guy by the name of Dennis. He grabs him and says, Dennis, I need some help. 
Then I said, what, 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 where do you need help, Vinny? Well, for more than 30 years, I've not spoken to my mom. Well, tell me about that, Vinny. Well, up to this day, I hold a grudge against my mom. She gave me free for adoption because she was raising me by herself and she couldn't handle it, so she gave me into a Waisenheim, and into an orphanage. So basically, all my life, I've been uh, processing that my mom got rid of me and I haven't talked to her in 30 years. Today, I would like to go and talk to her. So Dennis and Vinny go on a two-hour train ride down south of Germany, find the home of Vinny's mom, who's by then elderly lady, knock on the door, ring the bell, and Vinny stands in front of his mom and says, Mom, I forgive you. I want to reconcile with you. After more than 30 years of no communication. Here's what happened. Vinnie heard in a church-like setting about forgiveness. And it wasn't like anyone told him, now you need to go and forgive your mom. But it was his first instinct as a new believer that I need to get something right. I need to have forgiveness here in my house with my parents. So on the first day of being a Christian, he takes a journey and has a conversation that he hasn't heard for 30 years. He could reconcile with his natural family because he experienced forgiveness in his spiritual family. Let me close. Pick one area out of this list here where you want to take action this week. I've learned a, learned a long time ago, in church it's not about information. In church it's about transformation. If you guys want more information about God, you can just go and Google it and read some books and watch some YouTube videos. That's all more information. The reason you come here on Sundays is because we come together as a family and we all understand it's about transformation. We don't just need more information, theological information. We want transformation. We want lives to be transformed. And today I'm saying... We want our families to be transformed. I want your family to be transformed. I want my family to be transformed. And I'm learning that from the scriptures, from this new, very strange family that Jesus came to initiate called the family of God, which is comprised of people, men and women, who don't just nod their heads, but actually do the will of God. That's how Jesus described his family. Who's his new family? Whoever does the will of God, whoever goes and does what we as people of this new family do, whoever does that is part of the family. Let me pray and then invite you to the family meal. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for our new family here. It's a very special group that we've got gathered here this morning. And perhaps there we've got some visitors who don't normally come to attend this church service. And I hope everyone feels that they can be part of this family. It's not, it's not, uh, it's not how educated we are. It's not how smart we are. It's not how 
well-trained or polished we are or how far we are in our faith journey, you are inviting every single one of us this morning to be part of your family, brothers and sisters under one heavenly Father. Heavenly Father, I ask for your spirit to really do business in our hearts today. So all, there are some things that we, we all need to repent of, where we need correction, where we need to go and correct something, where we need to ask for forgiveness, where we need to grant forgiveness, where we need to express new love that we have not expressed in the past. I pray that this is the training ground here this morning that we really take this to our hearts and minds, back to our natural families. Amen.